Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Matthew 21. This is the story of the triumphal entry. It's the account of that. And uh, it is a turning point in the book of Matthew for the final chapters are the Passion Week of Christ, uh, his ministry, the accounts, his last and final teachings during the week of his time in Jerusalem leading up to the cross and then um, death, burial, resurrection, and you know, soon ascension. But uh, the Great Commission is the end of Matthew 28, and it's just that final unit that we're in, and it's the home stretch sort of breaks ground there. Let me read our text to get us started in this account, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Um, When I looked at this text again this week, I've preached it in from different gospel accounts, from Mark's account and Luke's account, from Luke several times here, I believe, never before in Matthew. But what stood out to me in Matthew's account is the question that the whole city of Jerusalem was asking at the close of Jesus' triumphal entry. He's there and everybody's stirred up and they're asking, who is this? What a question to ask. This is the question of the ages. This is the question that determines the trajectory of your soul. This is the question that either has you on the narrow road or the wide road that leads to destruction. This is the question that you should ask yourself, who is Jesus and what does that mean for me? It's a relevant question. It's as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago. The culture is different in terms of biblical times to today and then in terms of its people, it's exactly the same. We as people on planet Earth have to contend with the most intriguing, most compelling, most interesting person that ever walked it. This is the Lord Jesus. We live in a fallen world and there's only one way out of it and that's through Jesus. And it comes down to whether or not you see him for who he is or Not quite or not at all. Half measures will never do. You can't just believe in Jesus as a moral man or someone who was a do-gooder and that be enough. 
You can't see him as a moral agent or social activist or, you know, some great person that you kind of half agree with and half don't, and that is enough. No, this is a pass-fail exam. Who do you say Jesus is? Everyone knows that there's something compelling about him. Well, Listen to the words uh, C.S. Lewis, the great apologist, wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. I think this is one of the most salient paragraphs I ever have read that he wrote. He says, I'm trying to here prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon if you can fall... um, If you can, but fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. So he's either who he said he was and is or is not. People are looking to someone to solve the world's problems. This being an election cycle year, again, people will be especially looking for someone to step into some candidacy, some spot to say and promise that they're going to solve the perennial issues of life, the ones that they were looking to be solved then are the same ones that people are looking to be solved now. Who's in charge of the government? Are we safe from our enemies? How will the economy bode this year? Will the government exercise overreach? Will I keep my job so I can take care of my family? Will my children be safe and have a future? What's healthcare like? What's the military like? Am I being suppressed? So not a whole lot more that people are really, really concerned about than those things. And these are the things that boil out of people's hearts and bubble out of people's mouths over and over again. So it is a familiar trend to hear these things. The issues transcend the ages. The coming election will, again, bring um, people forward to test what they say, their political platform, and early on it will be a test of character. Who can get dirt on who the most and how much and what's validated or not, what is suppressed, what is revealed, what, you know, even different people coming out this week on things saying, hey, here's evidence on that and this, and as the political ideologies or platforms come forward, the character issues will recede to the background and people will act like that didn't happen or it doesn't matter or I've forgotten altogether or they'll rationalize it away. And it's all because people want so desperately to have someone that they can follow who will fix their problems and the problems that are more superficial rather than the problems of the heart. That's what's going on. This is human nature. We'll see it again and again. Jesus takes the exact opposite approach than what you would see at the, um, you know, the RNC and the DNC, the conventions, the Republican and Democratic conventions, where everybody's going to be propping up their substitute saviors with, uh, with signs and going, save us, save us, we believe, make the promise, we buy it. 
Jesus comes in at this point and says very little with his triumphal entry. The crowds and the masses are speaking for him. It all comes down to whether or not you see Jesus for who he is. Who is he? Is his character commensurate with his claim? He's made all of his claims. He's said all of his things for three years. And now he comes in as the sacrificial lamb, the quiet lamb coming in on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. A lot of times people will get muddied and muddled about their perception of Christ. They'll want to mold a Christ like out of clay to fit the solutions to their problems. People will do that. Instead of having Christ fix the problems that really are the deepest ones. The Passion Week is one where they're looking for Jesus to come into town and solve the problems, but when Jesus makes the problem someone's sin, then he becomes the problem and people will move away. It's trendy to still follow Christ as a moral teacher. Um, Someone that I follow and listen to sometimes on podcasts is Jordan Peterson. He's a known unbeliever, at least at this point, and a secular psychologist, but he's deeply interested in Jesus, and he's writing a book right now, a book project um, through the entire Bible, trying to moralize it and see the answers of life because it's profound. Jesus is profound and Jesus has captured his attention. But having your attention captured by Jesus is not the same as saving faith. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? That is the question that you need to ask yourself as you look at the triumphal entry. He's coming in silently as a lamb led to the slaughter, as a way to test who you think he is. The spotlight is now on your internal dialogue about what he has said based on the character of who you see. He's the lamb of God. He comes in as a lamb. A lot of people want a political lion to overthrow the government, but he came in first as a lamb. This is a test of priorities. This is a test of the two kingdoms. Are you of the kingdom that is not of this world or are you really just here in this world's kingdom? A lamb will come to take you to another kingdom. A lion will come one day to decimate this kingdom. There's two triumphal entries. This is the lamb triumphal entry. This is the one that you see down here on earth and go, I want to follow the lamb. The next triumphal entry will come when the lion comes and you want to be up there in the marriage supper looking down from there at that as the lion comes to devour and decimate the world in justice for those who haven't repented. There's two, not one triumphal entry, but let's look at this triumphal entry and let's watch the lamb together and answer the question, who is he? Point one, answering who this is, the lamb who came according to God's timetable. Verse one, it says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. They came near Jerusalem at the end of three years This is in perfect timetable accordance to the Passover celebration that was happening in Jerusalem. Jewish families all over would be remembering that 1,400 years ago prior was the great deliverance of Jerusalem or of the Israelites underneath the tyranny of Pharaoh, enslavement. 
the Passover. They wanted the death angel to pass over and not inflict judgment upon their firstborn in the home. And so they slaughtered lambs on the doorpost. And that was the way and the sign of faith to say, we are believers in you. And this Passover celebration was a commemoration of that. And so they would bring in their Paschal lamb into their household and they would slaughter it. Tens of thousands of lambs were being slaughtered as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem as the once for all sacrifice, everybody in their household was prepared to make their household sacrifice. Their household sacrifice was a symbol of Jesus coming in and they maybe didn't even know that. The Messiah was coming, the true lamb was coming and they were slaughtering physical animals. None of that slaughtering would atone for their sin. Only the slaughter of the true lamb of God would take away their sins. It's very poetic in the timing that the Lord now has returned. It says Bethphage is where they came to. This is somewhat of a base camp right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. This is where Mary, Martha, who were sisters, and then you have uh, Lazarus, Lazarus, who's their baby brother who'd been raised from, from death, and, was, and they're all there at Bethphage, and probably Jesus is at that house. And he's staging with his 12 apostles for this triumphal entry. It had just been three years before that Jesus was initiated into ministry. He came under the baptism of John the Baptist and the spirit of God led him into the wilderness. He was tempted by, by Satan. He passed the test, vindicated as the true Messiah and began to teach and preach and preach the kingdom of God and raise the dead, heal the sick caused the blind to see, ears to hear. He was doing all these miracles and now he's coming in at the end of three years to this moment. Bethphage was beneath, it was a little city. It was only mentioned in the triumphal entry accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it's next to Bethany, a city that's more mentioned in the, um, in the gospel accounts. It's at the, it's at the base of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is uh, set on internet to be 2,700 feet. We know flat top is 1,500 feet, so it gives you a little bit of a um, sort of a marker there. And uh, Jesus is going to be launching from the Mount of Olives, coming down, descending on the foal of a donkey, and then up again from that valley into Jerusalem, ascending another 2,000 feet. So it's, an, it's sort of a um, from the top descent and then ascend into Jerusalem. That's significant because where Jesus comes from at the Mount of Olives is where one day he will return. Exactly. Concretely so. Zechariah 14.4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. It lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, east to west, a very wide valley. So half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half south, southward. So this is sort of a foreshadowing of where Jesus is going to return. It's the month of Nisan. It's the Jewish month in the calendar year. It's springtime. It's A.D. 30, 31, 32, somewhere around that time when Jesus is going to die. Um, in the calendar, he would have been born a year or so before A.D. Um, Anodonomy begins, so that's how that works. Jesus is going down into Jerusalem, and this is a lethal path. He knows that he's coming in as a sacrificial lamb to die. So number one, he's the lamb according to the perfect timetable of God. And number two, the lamb who fulfilled Scripture's vision of a humble Savior. 
Uh, verse 1, again, he sent two disciples. This is a very sublimated scene. It's behind the scenes. You have God, very God, doing these methodical things to vindicate that he is Messiah and fulfill Scripture's vision. He says, go into the village in front of you, verse 2, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a, gold, a, a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. These details are validating his Messiahship because Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So this is, the king is coming. It's a big announcement from Old Testament prophecy. And then this is how you'll know it's the king. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. See that? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I mean, this is the court of Caesar. This is the time of Rome and domination. This is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that predates Christ's coming and then would last 100 years later. All of this peace was enforced by military might. By the way, what the crowds are calling Jesus to do, come in mighty strength, ride in on a war horse like Caesar would. It's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming on the foal of a donkey. The, the little colt and the mom riding in. Genesis 49, 11 alluded to this for the, um, the tribe of Judah, which is the, the line of the tribe of Judah is, is the line that Jesus came through, the line of King David. It says Genesis 49, 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Talking about the tribe of Judah, but that's an allusion to Christ, which would have been buried in the subconsciousness of the Israelites as they saw Jesus coming in on the foal of a donkey. Well, the animal was secured with immediacy. Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a, a donkey. This is something that was going to happen under the sovereign lordship of Christ. In Luke 19.30, it says that it would be one that was never sat on before. In Luke 19.32, this is the scene. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had found them. And as they were, sent, as they were untying the colt, its owners, the owners of the, the animals, said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And as the text goes, they said, well, take it, take it. This is macro prophecy being fulfilled with the Passover and micro prophecy being filled, fulfilled in terms of the donkey and the colt. It's just to validate and vindicate this is the sovereign Lord. This is the Lamb who is Lord. The Lamb who is Lord. And the Lord who is the Lamb. Historical figure and sovereign over all things. Who is this? This is our sovereign Savior who is Christ. And by the way, once he secured these animals, and it was in semi-public fashion, Mark's, Mark 11, 4 and 5 says it was at a door outside in the street that this was taking place. There were those standing there. People were understanding the Lord is here. Someone who's saying he's Lord is here. The full of a donkey is being taken for him to parade in. This word is getting out. The break line has been cut. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going in. He's going in. Nothing's going to stop this. And the mundane details are the, are the catalyst for this growing tension as Jesus is beginning to proceed towards the cross. This is the Lamb of God. Number three, not only do we have uh, the sense of God's timetable, the 
um, humble savior that fulfills prophecy. And number three, this lamb is the one who calls for genuine worship. Just by him being who he is, summons a response. Verse six says the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. It all begins with a private coronation where there is obedience, obedience. They brought the donkey and colt and they put their cloaks on him and sat on, and he sat on them. He sat on the cloaks that were on the animal. Their humble obedience is a royal ceremony. This is an animal that was set apart. It had never been um, sat on before, Luke 19.30 says. In 19, Luke 19.35, it says, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. So there's a ceremonial act of putting a bunch of cloaks on the animal, and then they're lifting Jesus onto the animal as a royal um, coronation. Again, this is way outside of the war horse scene of political overthrow. This is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world through humility. Him coming as the perfect God-man who takes the posture of a slave to serve us so that we would be saved. Jehu, the king that took over for Ahab in the Old Testament, First Kings says he rode in on a donkey. Solomon rode, on, rode in on a mule and Jesus in like kind is doing it. Now, as one person put it, how is this going to go where Jesus is riding on an untamed animal? I mean, this is uh, an animal that's never been ridden before. Some would say, well, you have the mother donkey, and so the colt will be tamed because of that. No, this is, uh, this is a miracle for Jesus to be able to ride in on this colt forever. I mean, just bottom line. How do I know that? Well, I, I don't know animals. And I especially didn't know my animal yesterday, but um, I went on a hike. Went on a hike yesterday. That's a dangerous thing in and of itself for Jeff Crotz to go on a hike. Whenever you see that in a sentence, you can pray. Um, I went. I went with some um, friends, out of town guests, and also my son Brady. And we went. Um, we went down Powerline Pass, that area, and then you sort of go down the ravine and get down to the, the bridge with water and stuff. And and I've got my dog, my big dog, with me. My big white. Um, dog and and we have our other dog and and we're leashed and we're we're going down there and um and you know what you do when you go on a hike you go man we can go this far let's keep going let's go a little farther so we start going up we start going up the switchbacks and you start going this is cool and I didn't anticipate going that far with the dogs because they're not really up for it and it yeah surely it's not 70 degrees outside with a dog with a fur coat. So we go up farther and farther and farther and I'm going you know I'd really like to summit this thing and get to the top the dog looked at me and was just like, no dice. And so, so we made a um, calculated decision, you know, with my master skill in hiking intelligence and said, let's go back down. So we start to go back down and, and we get down and uh, my dog likes to go downhill. She's good. And we get to the bridge, take a little water break, keep going. And then things start to go uphill again. And at that point, when we're, we're going uphill, we're going and going and there's people everywhere. The dog just stops. And she looks at me. And that look in her eye is, you're not moving me. There's no moving it. And she's over 100 pounds. So I'm not pulling the like, oh, man, I've got the dog and on my shoulders. So I was just stopped. And all you can do is wait 
and just water the dog and wait and water the dog and wait and hope it calms down. And I'm thinking of contingency plans. People are passing by from the church with sympathetic eyes like, hey, it's great. We really can't help you. I'm like, great. Have you read the Good Samaritan story in a while? I don't know. <laughs> what's, what's going on? They're just passing by. You're the religious one, aren't you? It was rough. The dog recovered an hour later and we made it. Okay, all right. So I'm not bitter. Don Carson said this about the, uh, about the unbroken animal, the colt. You, can, you can't ride an animal before it's been broken, especially a baby donkey riding through a yelling crowd. Humanly speaking, no rider could do this. In the midst of all this, an unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature and stills the storm. This even points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of all and under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes out. The animal knows and loves his true master for who he is. This is a foreshadowing of the healing and completion of all nature as found in Isaiah 11, the wolf shall live with the lamb. That was the private coronation. Well, the private coronation didn't stay private long. It became public, a public lauding of Christ. The scene is building and the crowds are growing and you can see that, see this in the text. They brought the donkey, verse 7, and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They're throwing down their cloaks, like carpeting the, the path for Jesus. It was probably a very demonstrative scene. You have crowds that are in front and behind Jesus now. You have people throwing cloaks down, people running out in the fields, getting palm branches. You're getting palm branches because this is the sign of military strength. The palm branches in the minds of those people, I would venture to say, were not harking back to the, the deliverance of Israel from Pharaoh, the wandering wilderness, the feast of booze where they laid palm branches as, as a, a tent, you know, for them to, to journey through to the promised land. None of that was in their minds. They were looking solely to Jesus as the political leader. They would wave palm branches like a, a sign to the new Caesar. It's the political sign to say, this is our new savior. This is the one who will take us to a greater peace of Rome. Jesus instead is coming as the lamb. He's ascending the Mount of Olives, 2,700 feet, and then he's descending and then reascending 2,400 feet to Jerusalem, probably in this ascent path at this point. Spiritually speaking, it's as if the glory of God was coming back. The Shekinah glory was coming back to Jerusalem. The Shekinah glory had left before the 400 years of silence, which is the intertestamental period between Old and New Testament, 400 years of darkness. The last sort of historical scene is the glory of God leaving the temple that you'll see in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, where it says the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is at the east side of the city. So the glory is on the Mount of Olives and then you have the picture of Christ coming down, going into the city to return. All the people are rallying around this and holding up their banners, which are these um, branches, these palm branches. 
And they're saying antiphonally, crying out to each other, Psalm 118. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting this, screaming it. Hosanna to the highest. Let me ask this question. This is the question of always this scene. Is this worship genuine? Are are these cries um, in good faith? Well, I think it's hard to say. It's hard to be definitive and dogmatic. Hosanna means Lord save us now. And so they want Jesus the Messiah to be their savior. And they're so raucous about this that the Pharisees, according to Luke 19.39, say, quote, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them down because there's going to be a riot that will come back to us from Rome because Jesus is this radical that's trying to overthrow the government. So I think there's probably some mixed emotion and some mixed motivations in what they're saying. Are they fickle Jews? Well, in a week's time, less than a week's time, they're going to cry out, crucify him. Will Varner, one of the um, professors at the Masters University, he makes the, uh, the claim that the Pharisees had actually selected a jury during the jury, um, during the trial of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. And that this pre-selected group of Jews are the ones crying, crucify him. And so the crowds, by contrast, are shouting in good faith, Hosanna to the Lord. Mark 12, 37, the great throng heard him gladly. That's possible, but listen to what Peter says at Pentecost in his sermon later. He says, Acts 2, 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, meaning a broad brush on the Jews. So I don't know. I don't know that it's for me to know the hearts of all of what's going on, but when people get muddled in their mindset about Jesus, they can get confused really quickly and try to mold him into the Jesus that they want him to be for that moment and miss the point altogether of why he's there. He's there to be the sacrificial savior. He's not there to bring political overthrow. That's definitely clear. In our coat of arms in the United States, there is the two-talon eagle picture where in the one talon on the left, you have the arrows, and in the other talon, you have the palm branches in the right. You know that, that picture there. It's a picture of political strength, and I think that's the picture that they had in their minds at that moment with those palm branches going, bring us political strength. It's the city of God and the seat of man and trying to merge and make those two cities one. Augustine fought against that um, in the age of Constantine. Remember, Constantine had Christianized and made brought Christendom to Rome. And as Constantine was leaving, Augustine had to address this issue. And he wrote the book, The City of God and the City of Man. And he was arguing that they are two different things. And the church of Rome, the Roman Catholic church wanted to merge it together and say there are two swords, but both swords are wielded by one person and that person is the Pope. It was the Latin uquip gladium, which is two swords. And this was not Jesus's plan. The lamb begs a different plan that comes down to one ultimate question. Who is this? Who is this? Now we know Jesus will one day rule with a rod of iron, but we have to first answer, who is this? The lamb begs an ultimate question, and that's verses 10 and 11. He's at the end of the march. 
The brake line had been cut. He's there in the city. He's exposed. He's public. Who is this? The answer to the question comes in verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city was stirred. And the answer to this stirring was he's a prophet. And we're going to localize him to Nazareth. Remember, he he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the Nazareth region. And then you have him ministering um, 78 miles north in Galilee. And that's where he grew up. That's where he ministered to. He was there a lot of the time recruiting the apostles, commissioning them, winning people to Christ. Who is he? Well, understanding Jesus geographically, understanding him historically, understanding him morally, understanding him as someone who's set apart in profundity, those are all great things. But that's not saving faith. You have to come in humble subjection and submission to the lamb and say, I repent of my sins, and lamb, you are the only one who can cover my sins and come into my life in a personal way, and you are my king and my Lord. You are the sacrifice for my sins. The entire city was full tilt asking this question. It's a great question to ask, and it's not a terrible answer to say he's a prophet because he surely is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. He's not just Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. He's not any of the minor prophets. He's the Messiah who speaks prophetically. So where are the hearts of these people? Well, our feet are firmly suspended in midair. We're left in ambivalence so that we can ask the question of our own souls and our own sakes and our own self as we look into the mirror of this text. Who do we say Jesus is? Because there are two triumphal entries. We've just seen one triumphal entry. There's going to be another one. And you have to solve for yourself, do you want a lion or do you want a lamb? And if you want the lion, you have to want the lamb first. He is all of these things, but you have to have your priorities right. Both triumphal entries are essential. One is sacrificial and saving. The other is judgment and damning. Decimation. Who will solve your sin problem? Because your sin problem will be solved one way or the other. If you think about it, your sin problem will be solved either through sacrifice or through crushing judgment. Your sin problem will be solved by one of two triumphal entries. Which triumphal entry do you want to solve your sin problem? That's the question of this text. This is the question in the vision of Revelation 5. The apostle John is having this vision, which is a real life happening where he's seeing these things in heaven in an amazing, miraculous way, but it's begging this issue. Revelation 5, 1, then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within, written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So it's perfectly sealed. You can't open the scroll. It's locked up. And all the names written on the inside of that scroll are the ones that are going to heaven. This is John's dilemma. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So John starts looking around in heaven. Who is worthy? Who can open this book of names so that they can go to heaven? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And here's John's response. It's genuine. It's a genuine weeping. I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, here it is, the lion of the tribe of of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll 
and its seven seals. There is one, and it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, from the lineage of Judah, as depicted by David, the fulfillment of David, the greater king, this lion has done it. And John looks around and looks at the throne and looks for a lion, and what does he see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. He looked for the lion, he saw the lamb. You have to have the lamb before you have the lion. As though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes and with seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The seven means the number of protection, seven horns meaning perfect strength, indomitable strength, seven eyes, perfect omniscience. He sees everything. And with seven spirits, God is everywhere. Christ is everywhere. This is your lamb who is also a lion. And what does that mean that he's a lion? Well, we're caught between two worlds, right? We have the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And the lamb takes you to heaven. If you're left here on earth, you'll be crushed by the lion. And by the way, you want to see the second trifle entry from the marriage supper of the lamb. You want to see it from the vantage point of heaven, not the vantage point of it coming to you from earth. At risk of reading too much too long, I'm going to read Revelation 19. Let's listen to the second triumphal entry. And an angel said to me, write, this is verse 9, 19, 9 of Revelation. Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Blessed are those. And he said, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. An angel's talking. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right, here it is. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and righteousness. in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that they fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet who was in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from his mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's the second triumphal entry. This is the one you don't want to be down here to see from Earth's vantage point. This is justice. This is judgment. This is decimation of a culture that has rejected the lamb. This is the same Jesus, by the way. The lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. 
This is Jesus who is God. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is Jesus who is God, who is the God of the New Testament. His wrath is on display here just as much as it was on display in the Old Testament and in other parts of the New Testament. But this Jesus now calls to you to come to the kingdom, come to the marriage supper of the lamb now in your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Answer the call and say, who is he? I know who he is. He is the lamb of God and I give my life to him. Do you want the lion or do you want the lamb? You want the lamb who is the lion. If you've ever climbed or repelled, speaking of climbing a mountain and doing switchbacks, if you've ever done it with a harness, Um, on where you're actually climbing up the side of a mountain, you know that you're not very relaxed unless you know that the harness is securing you. You might think that you're okay and you might think the equipment's okay, but you're going to climb nervously. If you're climbing nervously in life and you think you might be saved and you think you might have answered the question about Jesus, if you think you might have followed him, but you're still trusting in yourself some as you climb through life, you're nervous. The best thing you can do when you're in a nervous climb is to working with good equipment that's secure and your person who has you on belay is to say, let me test the harness and just rest in it for a little bit. Just sit back if you've ever had that experience. I, I, that's a picture of saving faith in my mind. You go, Christ, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, if you truly are the Lamb of God, let me just rest completely in you. All of myself, my whole self, my whole life is in your hands. When he saves you, then you can climb. You're not climbing to get yourself to heaven. You're climbing because he saved you. And that's saving faith. That's the grace of God. That's trusting in the lamb. Or at least it's a modern analogy to try to concrete it for you. Trust in Christ alone for salvation.